Episode 22 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Welcome to episode 22 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott and I'm your podcast host. Presently, this podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend time communicating directly with the team in question. And then we report to you in detail. As always, This podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. This week, I'm going to start out by asking for a little bit of help. The reason is that I feel like we have reached somewhat of a crossroads with this podcast, and that it could possibly go in a number of directions. Specifically, I'd like to ask your help as a listener in guiding that direction, or perhaps those directions. And just, if you would, indulge me a little bit as I elaborate. I originally, and naively I see now, imagined that I would be able to create two podcasts, actually. One that was devoted to ICO analysis, because initial coin offerings were really revving up when I started this podcast, and they were such a moving target, and so fascinating, that I wanted to devote almost an hour each week, 41 minutes actually, in analyzing them one by one. But I also thought that I should create a separate podcast to share a wide variety of topics that were related to Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, Ethereum, altcoins, and just blockchain technology in general. And if you happen to be an earlier listener, or if you listen to some of the early episodes, you might remember me promising to start something called Blockchain 41. Well, the short story is that it's just impossible to produce two podcasts each week uh, for someone who works full-time to begin with. And so I found myself in the evolution of ICO 41 sort of widening certain episodes to include other topics while still trying to maintain a somewhat robust analysis of initial coin offerings and new coins in general, maybe not necessarily ICOs. Like, for instance, if you look at Ravencoin, that was not an ICO. In any case, this format has been proven pretty popular, and I'm, I'm happy with that uh, to some extent. But i got to be honest. I feel like the show might benefit by broadening the list of topics and maybe even creating a more variable format. And ultimately... This podcast is not for me, actually. It's for my listeners. As you can tell, I don't even really try to monetize it. So I want the listeners, I want the people who listen to this podcast, and there's quite a number of you now, um, I want them to help guide the future of it. 
I can research deeply and I can talk about a much wider range of topics than just the latest upcoming initial coin offering. There are many, many other topics to discuss. And I really need your help. I I want to know, I have my own ideas, and I need to know what you think and what some of the topics that you might be interested in. So I I feel like in order to really continue, I I need your help. So I'm going to ask you to go to ICO41.com, ICO41.com. And right at the moment, ICO41.com is devoted entirely to a survey. You can still reach the blogs of the older episodes and so forth, but right now, ICO41.com is nothing but a survey. It's got about seven questions. Only the first couple of questions are really required, but I would so appreciate it if you have time to complete all of them. It's not a lot of typing. It's, it's mostly multiple choice. In fact, it's kind of cool. You can drag and drop some of your answers So you might ask, why am I doing this and and what is it that I'm looking for? So I'm doing this because I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I'm starting to feel a little fenced in with this whole initial coin offering theme. I, I do believe, I continue to believe that there is a tremendous amount of interesting information that can be had and absorbed by reading white papers devoted to cryptocurrency projects, ICOs. But it's getting harder and harder to find what you might call an honest or a, or a true cryptocurrency project. And easier and easier to find projects that are not that much more than fundraising events with a liberal dose of blockchain buzzwords, I guess you could say. Many of these ideas expressed are not even really well understood by the authors. And I've revealed that in some of my conversations on Discord and Telegram. Each week I feel like I'm being asked to sort of suspend my disbelief or or stretch my imagination to accept uh, the idea that blockchain is going to be the ultimate disruptor of industries that, quite frankly, are probably not going to be massively disrupted by using blockchain instead of a centralized database. So instead of just the same format each week, there might be other topics that you might be interested in and like to hear them. This survey is your opportunity to let me know what those topics are. Let me know what your thoughts are. Maybe you want more interviews. Uh, And if so, what kind of people do you want to hear from? Uh, There's plenty of opportunity to let me know what you want to hear about and potentially learn about if you find this educational. So again, please visit ICO41.com, fill out those seven questions, and I'm just going to give you a huge thank you in advance. Uh, Your opinions, your choices will help shape the podcast And we'll also ensure that it continues to evolve. Okay, so enough about that. So in keeping with broadening a little bit, uh, the first thing I want to cover this week is the quite interesting testimony that I listened to uh, where the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, and the chairman of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, Christopher Giancarlo, teamed up again to testify before the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. The testimony lasted a couple of hours And each of these two regulators took turns responding to questions from senators about cryptocurrency. Also about Bitcoin and also about ICOs. It was very much worth listening to for a few reasons. And you can go to, you can Google this and find the testimony and you can actually listen to it yourself. It's archived. 
But the first reason why you should listen to it is that it's an opportunity to get a sense of where the SEC and the CFTC are planning to go, as well as others planning to go, such as senators and lawmakers, to try to figure out how to deal with what everyone agrees is sort of this fast-moving events on the ground around cryptocurrency. We're talking about what appears to be on the cusp of widespread adoption. At the very least, it's rabid curiosity of average people uh, around this space. And there were a couple of pretty interesting moments in the testimony. In fact, it was pretty funny that the cryptocurrency community went pretty much ballistic in their praise in response to Chairman Giancarlo's opening remarks. Now, remember, he's the CFTC, not the SEC. And I got to admit, they were definitely not what any of us would have expected. <laughs> he told this story how being a finance guy's entire life, pretty much a trader, uh, that he dreamed of getting his kids involved in finance and trading at an early age. And he went as far as to open trading accounts for all of them, funding them with a little bit of seed money and encouraging them to invest and learn about markets. And wouldn't you know it, and I think anyone who has kids would not be too surprised by this, but with the exception of his youngest, kids pretty much have no interest. Until they discovered cryptocurrency. Now suddenly, they're fascinated by finance through cryptocurrency. And so his point was, look, this is an interesting topic and it deserves our respect, is what he essentially said. And of course, you know, it should be remembered that it wasn't that long ago that Bitcoin futures were ultimately approved by his office. If you go back and look at uh, Chairman Giancarlo's background, you'll see that he worked for a software company that provided a lot of trading functionality around Forex trading. So you might be able to see how he could be sympathetic to the concept of a digital currency and, and also technical solutions to financial problems. But in any case, those remarks and some others caused the cryptocurrency world to erupt with uh, really nothing short of joy with headlines like Bloomberg itself delivering crypto fanboys celebrate surprising new hero, a Washington regulator, hashtag crypto dad. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's got 42,000 Twitter followers, to which he responds with a tweet which was every bit as abbreviated as any 15-year-old could possibly imagine. <laughs> so he's speaking their language, so pretty, pretty interesting. Another thing that I thought that was interesting throughout the testimony was the care uh, with which both regulators and even, believe it or not, senators took to distinguish between cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. It was almost reflexive in the way that... Uh, their skepticism with cryptocurrency was sort of always tempered a little bit by references to the promise of blockchain technology to transform existing processes. And one senator actually, some of these senators had definitely done a little bit of homework and you could see they were surrounded by their aides who were, you know, people who probably fed them this information. But um, one senator went a, tried to probe a little bit further into uh, one of the remarks by Chairman Clayton uh, where he believed that just pretty much up all ICOs are security, end of story. And, and this particular senator asked how the tokenization of something like hard drive space might figure in as a security. And to which the chairman responded sort of breezily that it didn't much matter what the underlying asset was, security, 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 security. And I think that 
this is going to be an interesting line of inquiry in the future because if you really think about it, hard drive space sounds to me a lot more like a commodity than it does a security. And that is an important crux of this argument, right? That the SEC regulates securities and the CFTC regulates commodities or the trading of commodities. These are two very different agencies, and you can see that it's reflected in, in their approach. It's reflected in the people who are leading them, and, and they all work together closely, but it's actually a very, very interesting um, distinction to be made, and our future regulation will turn on some of those definitions. In a previous episode, I promised that I would ask directly the SEC about the Simple Agreement of Future Tokens, the SEFT uh, framework, and how they view that, uh, as it were. Uh, and, you know, I was listening to the testimony of Chairman Clayton, and I was prompted to send an email directly to his office. Uh, the first email I got back, of course, was a response explaining that, sorry, sorry, we can't respond to emails individually. But then, about a week later, I received another response uh, saying, hey, you know what? Uh, we're forwarding this one to a specific division for a response. So it must have been a pretty well-worded <laughs> email. So I, 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 very interesting, I, and I will surely share uh, you know, what the response was uh, when I get a response back. So in keeping with uh, my earlier comments about this proliferation of ICOs, uh, I've decided to try out a slightly different format this week, and that I'm going to cover three of the 33 planned ICOs between today and the end of February. Can you imagine? There's 33 ICOs that are going to be launched between the 18th and the 29th or 28th, whatever the last day is, of February. 33. So I'm going to do three of them. I mean, I can't even do 10%, but I'm going to do three. And that's, that's kind of part of, the, part of the difficulty here is it's just it's so much. But anyway, what I'm going to do now is since there's three, is I'm going to sort of run through the analysis uh, a little bit quicker, obviously. Um, I'm going to try to hit the important points. And you got to let me know if you do that survey, if you like this format as well, because this is something we can do too. Uh, we can do a more abbreviated, less in-depth discussion perhaps, but more coins. So without further ado, let's begin our analysis of... Taylor, White Rabbit, and Valhalla. All right, Taylor. So Taylor is the name of the project, and you might be interested to know that it's actually uh, named after a character on the show Billions. Uh, the smartest guy in the room uh, was a guy named Taylor, apparently. Uh, this was revealed in a Telegram chat. Uh, this is a Brazilian company. The tagline is Crypto Trading for Everyone. This company is creating a service that sends signals to your mobile phone for trading cryptocurrency. And they mainly, they have an algorithm that looks at the volatility uh, of a given asset. Uh, and they use the API for the exchange. And there's this sort of bot. Uh, and there's three levels to the bot. And the third level is the actually the ability to make the trade for you, basically buying low and then ostensibly selling high. So they put the... Uh, orders in for you. And you know, 
when when you get to uh, Telegram and you start asking, you just watch people ask questions about this, and even on Bitcoin Talk, you see that uh, people are saying, look, I know how to trade cryptocurrency. What's so hard about this? But they point out, hey, this isn't for you. <laughs> this is for everyone else who's about to jump on and try to trade cryptocurrency. And most people do not understand how to trade cryptocurrency. In fact, most people don't understand how to trade anything. One of the most educational things, I think, um, that you can do is trade cryptocurrency, uh, on even on a smaller exchange. And, and the reason I say that is this, is um, when you trade futures, uh, you've got to be pretty good, obviously. You've got to really understand the market and everything happens really fast. And you've got to understand the order book. And there's, the order book is usually kind of obscured from you and you have to go to great lengths to see it. And what's really great about cryptocurrency, especially sort of the smaller altcoins, is that first of all, you're not risking very much money usually. Um, second of all, it's slow. And thirdly, you can really, you have time to really look at that order book and understand what you're doing when you make a trade. You, you can understand that you're, you're, you're putting, that there's a bid price and there's an ask price. And, oh, look, here's the people who are offering to buy something at a certain price. And here's my order, my sell. Oh, look, it's at the top. My sell order is at the, you can see these kind of things. You can't see that when you trade futures. It's virtually impossible. You're lost in this massive amount of uh, volume. So it's very interesting to do that. But anyway, aside from that, because most people won't do that, most people will be just clueless and fumble around and screw themselves up six ways from Sunday. This is going to help. This could help. Uh, this could help at least. But the problem is, is it's great. It helps. Yeah, it helps you trade, but it doesn't help you learn. It's just going to, it's a bot that's going to make the trades for you, which is what most people want anyway. Most people don't really want to learn anything, right? They just want to have the thing handed to them on a silver platter. And that's what this actually uh, promises. Uh, so basically, though, it's a service that will be sold for about $60 a month for the signals. I believe there's a couple of exchanges that are supported. The biggest exchanges are supported in the beginning, and then they're going to you know, roll out more exchanges. The team is a Brazilian team. Uh, they have a Solidity developer with some credentials, uh, although I'm, I'm not completely sure how smart contracts would be used or needed in this particular ecosystem. But nevertheless, though, uh, they, they have some, they definitely has, have a pretty large team, actually, and they're not asking for a, a great deal of money. The use of the token, this is the thing, is that what's interesting about this is that if you look at the use of the token, there's very little, actually. There's the discount on a subscription fee. You, it's a, I believe it's proof of stake, so it's 1,000 tokens you hold. And I think, if I read this right, and there's a couple different channels that you get this information from, the white paper doesn't actually spell it out, but I believe if you have 1,000 tokens, you don't have to pay the basic subscription fee of $60. And then if you have 3,000 tokens, you don't have to pay the premium uh, subscription fee. But it's not it's not 100% clear about that, but um, you almost really have to go in and ask directly. There's a hard cap of uh, about $5 million, $4.7 million right now, so they're not asking for a great deal of money. There's 10 million tokens to be created. Uh, the sale starts on the 19th of February and it ends on the 20th of March, so that would be starting tomorrow. The minimum investment is $8. <laughs> it's 0 0.01 ETH. Uh, ether and the maximum investment is one of those rare ones that has a maximum investment is 50 ether $40,000 they want to keep it distributed the white paper is pretty lightweight but 
there's not a lot to it, right? I mean, there's, there's really no blockchain use case here. It's certainly a useful service, but there's pretty much zero reason for the token to be used for this very traditional type of service that somebody pays dollars per month for. It's a hosted service, just like any number of 10,000 different software services out there. So there's really no reason for a token in this case other than to raise money for the project which is not such a terrible thing. It's probably going to be a great service. Community. Talk about community. The Bitcoin Talk announcement came out on December 31st, and they've been fielding questions pretty well. There was an interesting comment from someone who has thought a lot about tokenomics in general, and they were, he was sort of chastising them for a weak token utility purpose, you know, and, and, and it wasn't really contributing to the network and so forth. They didn't really respond to that one. And uh, others asked about the fact that, you know, if, if it's a thousand tokens that and the price of the token is about 75 cents, which I think is their opening price, that works out to pretty close to $60 a month, which is sort of how they price the service. Uh, but their response was, hey, you know, you get the service with the thousand proof of stake tokens, but you still have the tokens. So they might appreciate in value. So actually, I thought that was kind of an interesting response. So that does, I see some benefit there in that case, actually. Uh, so what, what, 1,000 tokens at 75 cents would be about $750. So be interesting, uh, it's sort of a $750 investment to try to uh, try out this, this trading service. I, I actually can see that they, they might make it here, you know. So they did a pretty good job with the community um, and uh, their Brazilian team. And they have some uh, just interesting traders, crypto traders and bloggers and, and uh, podcasters uh, behind them. So I, I wish them the best, and I think they'll, they'll probably uh, do all right. Let's go to Valhalla. So Valhalla is uh, an interesting one. Um, so the tagline here is, we get you out when no one else can. Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, typhoons, and political crackdowns. We come when you call. So that's their tagline. <laughs> and so what, what they are about is that they're, they're bringing what I guess they call effective human disaster recovery options to millions of ordinary people on a global scale at a much lower price point than ever before possible. Now, that's, that's the end game. They admit in their white paper that that's not going to happen immediately. Uh, in fact, actually, probably their early adopters are going to be quite wealthy people because this is actually the ability to order up a human extraction team dispatched by helicopter and ostensibly manned by people with military backgrounds. They're called Valkyries. Uh, they're human extraction teams. And Valhalla, not only the project, but Valhalla is also uh, the sort of the secure site where you are brought for a few months to rebuild your life. Their disruption, their, 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 their business model is, is disrupting the life insurance industry. What they're doing is they're creating a marketplace of rescue and recovery services. So the idea is instead of buying expensive life insurance policies or maybe other forms of insurance, you would stake tokens, Valhalla tokens, and then you'd sort of activate your policy and you would receive evacuation services using helicopters and who knows what else. So they admit in their white paper that early adopters of this service would be significantly wealthy individuals with high public status. They actually talk about cryptocurrency millionaires with undeclared wealth, which is kind of interesting concept. They're, they're targeting cryptocurrency millionaires specifically, 
uh, with a lot of money that isn't money, since the services would be paid for in Valhalla tokens, it would be something that these wealthy individuals could pay for without using fiat currency. That's interesting. Uh, large companies uh, are another early adopter for executive safety. Remember that movie about, I don't know, 10 years ago with Russell Crowe, uh, took place in South America, where he had to go, you know, rugged guy goes down, brings somebody back from, the, from some drug lords or something. You know, think that. that, that that's kind of the... And when you go to the website, you look at some of these guys are ex-Navy SEALs. You know, they, they sort of fit that bill. That's sort of the background here. Secondarily, after they create this Valhalla and somehow scale it, I'm not sure how they're going to do this. They, they actually don't explain how, but somehow upper-middle-class people that are living in disaster-prone areas like California might make use of these services. Not sure how... They would be able to afford it, but who knows? Maybe the price of the Valhalla token will help. Uh, and of course, the ultimate goal, as they mentioned in the white paper, was to bring these kinds of services to millions of people at low price points. I somehow don't see, though, uh, regardless of blockchain or no blockchain, how 250 people in rural Pakistan or Haiti under any circumstances could order up a Blackhawk helicopter, blockchain or no blockchain? Uh, this is the kind of question that I would have liked to have been able to ask directly to the team in question on Telegram or Discord. But as you'll see, there is no Telegram or Discord channel. Uh, the team uh, consists of uh, some interesting people. Uh, there's a 20-year veteran with the FBI. There's uh, some bunch of securities professionals. There's the former U.S. ambassador to Croatia. There's a couple of uh, Navy SEALs, like real legit Navy SEALs. Uh, the attorney is an interesting individual who is a survivalist and is also ex-military. So there's definitely an interesting group of people here, uh, and their connections, I would imagine, might help them out in this case. Uh, the token, uh, which is VHL, is to be used for extraction services. And the justification when asked, why can't you just use Ethereum or Bitcoin, was that, that Valhalla being, being sort of a custom token would have a little, could have a little bit more stability than otherwise. The cap is 50 million. The hard cap is 50 million. Uh, the sale started on the 13th of February. Although when you go to their site, I think they're still talking about a pre-sale. The, uh, the minimum investment is uh, $500, and it's pegged. The VHL token is pegged at $1, uh, one U.S. dollar, so it's basically 500 tokens. They talked about the proceeds of the ICO. If they raise less than $10 million, they're going to build the marketplace itself. So you, you'll be able to order extraction services and so forth. If they raise more than $10 million, they're going to build the Valkyries, the actual extraction teams, and also Valhalla, the safe locations. The, the response of the community has been sort of interesting. That The initial Bitcoin talk announcement appeared in November and was pretty much slammed right away within minutes by a senior member who went on a little bit of a rant. And, and ended, he ended his rant with, nice try, G-man, close but no cigar. <laughs> 
G-Man, reference to the FBI guy, right? And this was met with a, yeah, not a bad response. Um, you know, other people responded, and so did the G-Man, actually. Then the announcement thread went really quiet, and in fact, nothing until the pre-sale was announced uh, in January. Not much response at all. There's only one page, actually. The announcement is still at one page, which is kind of interesting for something that was, you know, announced in late November. There's nothing really on Reddit to speak of. Uh, there's no Telegram channel. There's no Discord channel. You can't ask these questions directly. Uh, they're pretty active on Twitter. I mean, they they started this back in October. I think they probably started the account in October and started tweeting about various things related to extraction and disaster and this and that. My takeaway uh, is that it's going to be very interesting, actually, to see how this goes since there's really nothing. There's no normal channel you know normally you'd see something on telegram discord you'd see them you know all over the place with ico ratings and this and that and there's a few but uh it's it's definitely not your typical ico release they might though because of who they are they they might be conducting their own networking probably are with people in their respective industries, which are significant. I mean, we're talking Navy SEALs, FBI, uh, former ambassador of Croatia. They're, I'm sure they have a lot, of, they know a lot of people, you know. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to just uh, reach uh, maybe close to their 10 million anyway, just through, I don't know, friends and family, perhaps. I'm not sure. It's going to be interesting. Interesting to look at, interesting to read the paper. So something to watch. All right, the next one is White Rabbit. So White Rabbit, uh, the tagline there is a new digital streaming reality. And what this is, is this is the ability for consumers of entertainment, streaming entertainment, to reward the content rights holders of films and TV series directly using blockchain technology. And, of course, this ostensibly helps to ensure that the creative artists actually receive their fair share. Uh, what's interesting about this is that it works over P2P, you know, peer-to-peer -peer streaming, which is sort of the bane of, of Hollywood in a way, you know. They, they just automatically assume that P2P is, is all piracy. Uh, so the problem that's... I think the problem is described pretty well. The number of problems are described pretty well. Uh, the people that are writing this white paper, they're European. This is not a Hollywood or California or, 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 or even a United States, really, effort. Uh, this is definitely from the European film industry, but they definitely seem to understand well uh, what they call a failing business model of digital distribution. According to what they say in the white paper, content is expensive, users have less choice than they did before, Revenue is not only not transparent, it's not even cash flow positive. Netflix can't even make money streaming digital content, apparently. Uh, what White Rabbit intends to do is to allow content creators to get directly compensated by those who are actually consuming the content in a variety of touch points before, during, and after the stream. And the white paper seems to be written by people who understand the business side of the entertainment industry pretty well. And they do a good job of explaining the problems that Netflix and Amazon are having with their digital streaming services. And if nothing else, you should read that white paper because it's definitely an insider view. Uh, they break the problems down into some pretty simple challenges. 
first of all, too few films and even fewer filmmakers make money from digital distribution at all. Most of the time, filmmakers get a one-off sum of money, no residuals, which if you can imagine, that has to be quite a shock in an industry that has lived off residuals since its inception. I mean, I, I think I even read something on, uh, on, on an article recently where Netflix just plain out isn't giving residuals at all. It's just, here you go, here, we're buying this from you, and they get to stream it forever. And none of the people who had anything to do with it ever get compensated after that point. And people are obviously out there doing it because you know, it's a limited distribution. It's sort of like the publishing industry, right? This is sort of almost approaching self-publication, uh, which has sort of been an explosive growth and, and effectively has, in fact, cut out a significant number of, of uh, New York City publishers. Uh, not, not, they haven't taken over, obviously, but, uh, but it's, it's a thing. I mean, there's no question about it. It's, it's a successful disruption, and this is what White Rabbit is attempting to do. Another thing that they want to really tackle here is lack of transparency. I heard a story on NPR last week about a, a legal firm in Los Angeles that literally makes its entire living off of finding contracts for talent that are not being honored by studios, sometimes going back 20 years. And I myself actually have a little bit of experience in this. I was involved uh, in a software project for a major Hollywood studio in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. The software that we were building was designed to somewhat mitigate that lack of transparency. But just, just my experience with that project uh, opened my eyes to the problems that are really rampant in that part of the industry, transparency. And the third challenge they mentioned, which is interesting, is, is this, this whole pirates versus fans mentality, where fans are sometimes forced to break the law, essentially, because they don't have access to entertainment that they want, and they couldn't pay for it if they wanted to because of that lack of choice. So there's this interesting idea that it'll, it'll help combat or at least mitigate or reduce piracy because it'll give an avenue and opportunity for people to actually pay what might be a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, for the content if they take out the middleman. And the solution, the technical solution, is a browser plugin and that allows you as the consumer through your browser to interact with the stream in a way that the content rights holders get compensated as well as any hosting service, perhaps a streaming hosting service, as well as White Rabbit itself. This reminds me of, um, you might remember this ICO. It was about a year and a half ago, actually. It was a while ago. And it was uh, Basic Attention Token, the BAT. And it was, uh, it's a browser plugin also. In fact, they have their own browser. Sorry, it's Brave. You should download that browser. It's a fantastic browser, Brave. And it was very high-profile ICO. And it also allows content creators to get compensated through a token, through a BAT token, uh, through the browser. So it's similar. And, you know, the whole idea to, to eliminate the middleman is, is, is more of a classic use of blockchain. So for that reason, I, I sort of like this project. I certainly like the promise of it. I think the idea of it is, is laudable. And uh, I think it will really go a long way of helping a lot of people if, if they can pull this off. This is a European, mainly a Norwegian team. Uh, it's got some directors and 
producers involved, not a lot of technologists. In fact, they've taken a little bit of hit on that on Telegram uh, and in, in Bitcoin Talk. They, they, they've you know had to respond that, oh, yeah, no, we're going to get some blockchain developers. And of course, they're going to need that, right? Because this is an ERC-20 token and they're going to use smart contracts for this whole thing. So they're absolutely going to need that. Now, they do have an advisor uh, named John Ramvi. Uh, he's in Oslo. And uh, on the Telegram channel, the, the CEO of someone very high up in, in this ICO said that, hey, John Romby is right down the street from us in Oslo. So trust me, we're going to build this, guys. Don't worry. So that was, that was pretty good. Good response. Uh, use of the token is pretty simple. It's going to pay directly the content rights holders. One of the good things about this white paper is that they actually do take the trouble to create some case studies. Their, of course, idea is to ensure that everyone involved in all aspects of the production of the series or the film uh, gets rewarded. And they create these case studies for producer, sales agent, and director. Uh, just to give an idea about how it goes, uh, the producer would receive revenue directly, share revenue themselves, or, or they would be a sort of recoupment agreement and that would automate payment to involve parties. So if the producer had people that they needed to share the revenue with, they could add what's called a recoupment agreement to the smart contract. And there is some pricing. Uh, the White Rabbit price is, is $2 for a film and $1 for a series. I guess that's $1 for a series episode. Which I guess that makes sense in a way. I mean, if you think about the Game of Thrones episode, it's almost like a movie each week. So I suppose that uh, seems like a price point that might be accessible. But producers are also able to set their own price for content, which is pretty important. Uh, there's also the ability for producers to create donation only. Uh, and there's even a very territorial kind of model here. And when I was, when I was on that project that I can't mention the name of obviously the the studio but territory was a huge huge issue with uh you know selling rights to intellectual property per territory and so i there's a very large territorial component in in the white paper here as well there are things like rabbit partner streaming sites uh, and that way you know, producers can target their audience more efficiently. Now, that sounds a little bit less like P2P and more like, you know, B2P, I guess you could say. Now, the sales agents have pre-bought global digital rights, and they've picked up territories for films or series. And this is obviously in keeping with the current model, uh, which is very territorial as well. And, of course, the sales agent has the ability to um, set a unit price according to the unit price sold in the territories. Obviously, the sales agent has the rights to do so. And the app uh, will provide uh, a dashboard and a mobile app to track and, and record the, the rights. And most likely, of course, uh, you know, the actual streams, I'm sure. Um, and then finally, the director what is mentioned in the white paper is that uh, directors, writers, and actors very often do not receive their fair share of revenue. There's been lawsuits they bring up. Uh, filmmakers, creators, The Walking Dead, Mad Max, uh, Spinal Tap, Goodfellas. You know, so there, there's been high-profile issues, 
and they go on uh, to explain in detail how uh, this White Rabbit app will mitigate those kinds of problems for directors, writers, and artists. I think that the project has a lot of promise. There is just one slight issue with this whole territorial aspect in that I don't think they're really considering the fact that uh, P2P networks are not really territorial. It's very, very difficult to fence in territory, where it's quite easy to do that now with broadcast channels. Those are physical locations. Uh, they broadcast content. But P2P is essentially, especially, by the way, when you use things like a virtual private networking, which is routinely used where geolocation of your IP address is, is just simply not possible and unable to really distinguish because it's encrypted. So I think that there's a slight issue there that they might run into as they go through with this project. But again, uh, just the concept of removing the middleman is certainly laudable. Uh, one last thing is, I hope you have a great week. Please go and fill out that survey and talk to you next week.